Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. As we have brought our praises to God in song, calling on Him for protection, We do the same to ask him to protect us from his own wrath against our sins. So we hear God call us to confess our sins before we do so. Psalm 40 and Romans 10 today. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. In Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The psalmist says he will say what he believes to everyone at church. And Paul offers a basic brief confession of faith that Jesus is Lord. Every week here, we say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and this is a response to God's word with words of the church that summarize God's word. Let's consider that creed a bit further a moment. Worship is like a ceremonial conversation. When you're discussing things with a friend, one way to listen closely is to paraphrase back to them what you hear them saying. And that is what we do here with the help of the historic church. God speaks in his word. And then we speak back to God that through her creeds and catechisms, the church teaches us what the whole Bible says. So after we hear a portion of scripture, we speak to each other and to God. God, your word reveals God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe that is you and that you are real and that that description is you. So that's what we're doing. It's important that we practice confessing and professing our faith saying what we believe. It's training for evangelism, for discipling our own children. Uh, God's baptized people are called, supposed to do this. There need not be a one-time profession of faith that's more decisive, that makes you think you know for sure that you are saved. Faith is a sustained thing, more than it is a one-time thing. And so every week we express our faith here together to practice doing so every day in our work, school, family life, community involvement, wherever God puts us. And when we sin, we contradict our profession of faith. And we must confess where we have failed. chapter 17 this week. Acts chapter 17. We'll read the second half of the chapter beginning at verse 16. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare once again to hear your word, we pray that you would open this text to our minds and to our hearts, that your spirit would be alive and active Uh, in our uh, individual souls, in our families, within this building, and that you would take this word and uh, run with it in our lives. We pray this, that your son Jesus may be glorified, that we would be made more like him. For we are united with him, we are co-heirs of your inheritance. And so we pray that you would uh, make us faithful family members. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 16, Acts 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. 
because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all, by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. We have here a famous passage, Paul on Mars Hill. The term Mars Hill isn't in this translation, but that's what Areopagus means, Mars Hill. Uh, Paul communicates here who God really is to a world that is secular, cynical, and idolatrous. And I'm going to unpack that theme today. Remember from before that Paul had been sent on ahead uh, to Athens while Silas and Timothy mop up the mess and straighten out the brand new church back in Berea, where the Jews had been following Paul around, agitating in city after city. So they send Paul ahead uh, to Athens. Verse 16, we start, Paul is waiting for them, and he is provoked, his spirit is provoked as he sees the city full of idols. This is nonsense, is what Paul is probably thinking. A, A city full of idols. It's like Well, it's just so pervasive. You know how sometimes you get used to the landscape around you, but then you go to certain places where it's just particularly bad and acute. It's like, oh, this is is not how it's supposed to be. And it's not just that it's stupid. This is soul-destroying stupidity. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, right as uh, Paul uh, finishes or comes to describing uh, the Lord's Supper, before he does that, he says, you can't partake of the table of demons and the table of the Lord. You can't do both. And what he's referring to is idolatrous worship, like he's seeing here in Athens. It wasn't just a statue that's involved. It's, 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 uh, it's focused around a statue, but then there's also um, the table and the feast uh, to Aphrodite or Dionysius after the worship service. Uh, which was often an orgiastic fiasco. So Paul is uh, thinking of this. It's not that there's anything in the idol itself, but worshiping it is demonic. And it's appalling to consider communion with demons. So Paul is distressed by this idolatry, people not glorifying God. Paul wants to obey the Great Commission and disciple Athens to the Lordship of Jesus. That's what he's trying to do. Uh, But even more than just bare obedience, he has compassion on them, for they are lost, and they're going to hell without Christ. Even more than that, Paul has a zeal for God's name to be exalted by the Athenians, and they're wasting their life 
with this idolatry. At our last presbytery meeting just recently, we did an ordination exam, and uh, a man who was being examined, uh, he, he was asked the question if he could uh, summarize the book of Romans very briefly. <laughs> we, you, we always give him the easy questions, right? Just in two minutes, what's Romans say? His answer was fascinating. He, of course, uh, the whole idea of justification and so on is very crucial to the book of Romans. But he went to the very beginning and the very end of the book to say that what Romans is really about is Paul wants people to worship God. That's what it's about. People are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. They're worshiping earthly things. And, and the, the, the whole scope of God's plan is to get God to worship him again. That's what Paul's trying to do here in Athens. So he goes to the synagogue and he goes to those in the marketplace. Notice the synagogue gets almost no attention in this passage. I don't know if it was because it's smaller or just because the Mars Hill event kind of overshadows everything. But he, he winds up in the marketplace uh, talking with the Epicureans and the Stoics right away to anyone who will listen. Now these are the, these are the big wigs. This is the big leagues in Athens. This is the intellectual capital of the, the Grecian Empire. When you say Epicureans and Stoics, th that's a big deal. Those are the leading schools of thought of the day. Uh, the Epicureans were the ones who said, uh, how do we respond to life? Well, we eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So it, it, it's, it can be summed up in the phrase, seize the day. Okay? We don't know what's coming, death is coming, some kind of judgment, maybe from some gods, we don't know. So let's just have all the fun we can have right now. That's the Epicurean philosophy. And the Stoics, they said we need to submit to fated destiny and endure and accept whatever's coming. And whether I'm suffering pain or having pleasure doesn't matter to me one bit. I shouldn't let it bother me at all. Let's just grunt through life. Those were the two kind of responses that the, the, uh, the Grecians had, the Athenians, to life. And Paul says, no, it's neither one of those. And we'll get into more detail how and why. Uh, so they uh, take him to the Areopagus, uh, and they say he's, he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection, end of verse 18. Uh, notice there that he had, he's not changing his message at all. That's what he's preaching in the synagogues too. So when he gets to the... The, the intellectual capital of, of the world of the time, he doesn't change his message at all. He's still preaching the same gospel. There's no fear of man going on here where he changes the message because now these are the influencers. That's not something you want to do when you're uh, coming at people with the gospel itself. So, Areopagus, it is like a university today, a place where the best minds consider ideas. Uh, it's literally called the Hill of Ares. That's what it is. The Greek god Ares, the god of war. Uh, the Roman god, same god, was Mars. So we call it either Mars Hill or the Areopagus. And this wasn't just a place. It's a council of men. It, you might consider it kind of like the Ivy League accreditation board. It's something akin to that. Uh, you don't have total freedom to say anything you want in the city of Athens. You have to be cleared by these guys to make sure that you aren't advocating sedition against the city or against the gods. If you're advocating foreign gods, that's a criminal offense. So they invite him to Mars Hill. What are you saying? What's this new thing? What's this new message you've got? Tell us about this. So, uh, so part of it is verse 21, that they're just curious and they just want to just talk about anything new. They're, they're just um, caught up in uh, discussing ideas and doing nothing else. But there's also this element of, you need to be in the orthodoxy of Athens. Are you or not? And so let's, let's hear your message. So they give him a, a chance to speak. Some call him a babbler. I, that's an interesting word. It's like, um, the word is like a, a picker like a bird that goes around picking at things to build a nest. It's like, it was a derogatory term to say, this guy's just picking random ideas and trying to cobble them together into something, and it's, it's not making any sense. That's what some of them were saying. Uh, not worth listening to. Others are seeing the possible problem. He seems to be advocating foreign gods. <laughs> he's talking about this Jesus like he's a god or something. 
Never heard of that before. We better check that out. So uh, it's, think of that. Apply that to today. That what a mix this is of uh, people who are responding to hearing the gospel the first time. It's a mix of dismissal, a little bit of interest, suspicious hostility. It's a lot like today. And, and that's why this passage is so compelling is because it's so relevant to today's world. Well, let's go to Paul's speech, verse 21. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. In that sentence, uh, Paul leads off with a Greek word that is seven syllables long. <laughs> the, the Greek word often cobbled together words, just like the German does, and, and makes these really long compound words. And that word, you are very religious, is one of those here. Seven syllables long. You don't see that much in Paul's uh, uh, speeches. But when he's at the, at the uh, apex of intellectual life, what he's doing is he's showing that he can speak their academic language. That's what he's doing. He's, that's one of the first words he uses. He's, so the next thing he says is he points to the unknown God, verse 23. This unknown God you worship, I'm going to proclaim him to you. Here again, a rhetorical tool Paul is using. Uh, the rhetoric was a key emphasis of the Athenians, and Paul's using it uh, and showing them that he can use it. He's, he's adapting into their world in a sense. So this is a rhetorical tool to help them to fit God into their framework at first. That's what Paul's doing. Paul isn't really saying that the God of Israel is on par with all these other idols, uh, but he starts with what they know before proclaiming the truth to them. And, and this exposes their professed ignorance notice. So I, see, I see you've got an unknown God. There's something you don't know, isn't there? And you admit it because you've made a statue all about it. <laughs> so it, it's, a very, it's a rather diplomatic yet kind of backhanded way that Paul says to the Athenians, you guys pride yourselves in your knowledge, but you know yourselves, you don't know everything. Here's this, what's, so what, what about that? Let's, let's start there. And he enlightens them. And so with classic boldness, Paul proceeds to give the Athenian philosophers a survey of worldview. Like, let me tell you what the world's about. You need to know the basics about God and man. So at the heights of culture, they think they know it all. They think they've seen it all. And yet they need to see Jesus as he is. They haven't come to know him yet. And again, that sounds an awful lot like today. We're, we're, we uh, talk about being in a post-Christian society. Part of what that means is there are people growing up who have never heard the gospel, who have ne don't know much about the Bible at all. It's incomprehensible to older people like me, but it's true. And that was true of the Athenians. Uh, and it's pretty easy too these days, I think, with some people at least, to get them to acknowledge that they don't have absolute certainty and complete knowledge of everything. They don't have life all figured out. And that's a place to start. The unknown God. Could it be that God is speaking to us but we haven't heard him yet? That's a message that a post-Christian world might listen to. So that's where Paul begins. And he goes straight from there, verse 23, to verse 24. The first thing he says is, The God who made the world and everything in it, Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man. So he starts with the doctrine of God. God is not created. God is the creator. He made heaven and earth. Now why would he start there? Well, because of all the temples and all the statues around what they loved doing was making things for the God to live in or making things that represented God. It's all about, we're going to make things. We're the creator. That, that was kind of the Greek worldview. We're, man is the creator, and, and we create things. Paul flips it around. We, we're, we were made by God. And he quotes their own poets to show the inconsistency between their beliefs and their actions. They say they depend on God, but their idols try to manipulate God. And sometimes people today do the same thing. Christians today, we can do the same thing. We say we depend on God, but often we're trying to manipulate him, maybe not by making a 
physical idol, but by doing or saying certain things, we think we're in God's graces. So, the doctrine of God. God is the creator. God is not contained by temples. God isn't flattered or controlled by us. He doesn't need our sacrifices. Paul's pointing to all the things that the Greeks, the Athenians did all the time. Bring sacrifices every day to the temple to make sure that God, that God isn't mad at you. It's, it's an appeasement process, a constant appeasement. God needs to be appeased, controlled, flattered to make sure that our life goes okay. That's not how it works, and God doesn't need that. And uh, more importantly, the enlightened Greeks of the day knew this. They knew this. Euripides, the, the Greek version of Shakespeare, says it himself in his plays. He says the very thing Paul is saying. It was the, the popular doctrine of the Athenians to, to do all this uh, um, idol worship. But mo- most, many of the intellectuals on Mars Hill uh, saw through all this and realized, this, isn't, this can't be how God is. It, it, nah. But they didn't have the answer either. So Paul's showing them the same problem. He's like, yeah, I see the, the same problem you see. Let me tell you what's, what the answer is. Verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands. We talked about that as though he needed anything. Next verse, phrase. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God gives life. So here, he's in the doctrine of God yet. Let's keep talking about God. You, you think God needs your sacrifice. Actually, you need God's heir. <laughs> God gives you life. And I want to focus on the second word, breath. God gives you your breath. You, you need God's air. I mean, focus on your physical breathing for a moment. Maybe you've breathed five times in the last ten seconds or so. You haven't been thinking about it. But now the next breath you take in, realize that's a gift of God. That air you breathe in is a perfectly concocted oxygen mixture to give your body just what you need. That is not just automatically there thanks to Mother Earth. God the Father concocted that, that next breath of oxygen, or it would not be there. I thought just this morning as I was going over this again, think of creation, the first six creation days, right? The first six and a half days of creation, five and a half, but when God makes everything right up till man, he's doing all that in preparation to put man in this setting so that when he breathes life into man and man takes his first breath, so he, now he can take a second one because God made the heavens and the earth. That's how utterly dependent we are on God and what, how he has made us. So he's really driving home the point here. God gives us life and breath and everything. Everything we need. End of verse 25. He gives to, man, uh, to mankind all these things. He orders all mankind. Verse 26. From one blood or from one man, uh, he makes all the nations. That refers to Adam, by the way. Uh, There are many Christians out there who deny a historical Adam and Eve, and they have to deal with this verse. It completely contradicts uh, their lame attempts to integrate evolution into the Christian faith. No, there's one man from whom all nations came. So uh, every nation came from Adam. There's a second point he's making there, which goes against the Greek idea that they were superior to the barbarians. There was a lot of intellectual pride in Athens. If you don't speak Greek, you're a barbarian. You, you just, you're uncivilized, you're a Philistine, is the way they thought. And Paul is, uh, I don't know if you call it gently or diplomatically, he's making the point, verse 26, God made every nation from that one man, Adam. All made from the same man. So it goes against that idea that we're inherently superior as a people, for whatever reason. Uh, Verse 27, the point is, you see the word that in the beginning of verse 27, uh, and and you got long sentences here, so you kind of have to go back and see what's he saying. He made from one man all the nations of the earth, 
that they should seek God. So the point is, God created us so that we would seek Him, to, to put it more simply, right? The point is to have contact, to have communion with this Creator God. He's not just up there in the sky running things and we're never going to know anything about Him. The point is that we would have contact. He made us to seek Him, to worship Him. Now here, Paul is going back to affirming their religiosity in a way. You're doing what God made you to do. You're even making an idol to an unknown God. You're trying to find God. That's what God wants. You're doing what He made you to do. But you obviously haven't found Him yet. You've got the statue to an unknown God. You know you haven't found the whole truth that you need. That's what he's saying. That's what we can say to people today. So, verse 28, he again, he quotes the poets. In him we live and move and have our being. But we indeed are his offspring. He's not far from us. That's what Paul's saying. Those are quotes from uh, Greek poets that we've uh, found and and referenced. He's saying, your own people are telling you God is near and can be found. And yet you haven't found him. So let me tell you how you find him. It's great rhetoric here, and it gets better. Verse 29, the logic in verse 29 is just astounding. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. If we're God's children, what are we doing building temples and idols as if that idol is like God? We're like God. Why why build an idol that's, that's like God? We are his offspring. If we're God's children, then God isn't gold or stone because we aren't. That's, that's the, the inevitable logic Paul's mentioning here. And this is why we um, went to Psalm 115 this morning at the beginning of the worship service. Uh, because the nations, they make idols. And, and their noses can't smell and their ears can't hear. And those who make them are going to become like them. But we trust in the God of Israel. So uh, that's the idea that Paul's pointing out. Now, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. This gets a little gutsy for Paul. Now, now he's not being so diplomatic anymore if he was at the beginning. Uh, the times of ignorance. <laughs> he's, he's saying, you guys have been ignorant. And, and you can see that, and many of them did see it. And he's calling for a change. You can't continue like this. You aren't... And so what he's saying here, and this is, this is just the message of grace in the gospel that we need to keep remembering. When we're caught in our sin, when we see our sin for what it is, and we're tempted to despair, that we need to see this. So whenever you bring a note of conviction to people, it's important to say this too. You aren't hopelessly condemned for what you have done. God overlooked this time of ignorance for a while, but it's time to repent. You can't stay in that sin either. But it's not hopeless. So that's Paul's note of repentance. Now, why do we need to repent? Verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Judgment is coming. That's why. We know this from Scripture, from Psalm 98, for example. We sing Psalm 98, and the last verse we always sing joyfully. Because he comes, he surely comes, the judge of earth to be. With justice, he will judge the world. All men with equity. It's a glorious uh, paraphrase of Psalm 98, verse 9. It's why we read John 5, that Jesus is the one to whom all judgment is given. And when his voice calls, all the, the, the tombs will be let forth, the bodies will come to Jesus, and he will judge all men. That judgment is coming. Notice Paul does not quote any scripture here yet. We, we know these things from the scripture. The Athenians didn't. I think it's because they didn't know it that he didn't quote it. It would be kind of like a Catholic today uh, trying to persuade us Protestants that the Mass is the right way to worship by appealing to a bunch of papal statements about it. Say, so, well, we don't accept those. We don't, that, that, that argument's not going to work. 
same thing with Paul to the Athenians. He's making the case uh, without quoting scripture yet. He'll get there, but this is the initial contact. So, same with Jesus in the next part of the verse. He's, he will judge the world in righteousness, verse 31, halfway through, by a man whom he has appointed. Doesn't even say the name yet or anything. They've known the name from before. He's, talked, he's said Jesus before. But here he says, by a man whom he has appointed. That's key. The man. For the Athenians, member of the Greek philosophy, man is the measure of all things. Right? That's the way they think. So they can understand the gods making the human race from one man who sets the standard for all to follow. They get that. And Paul's, Paul's like, yep. And, and you'll get to the point to say, too, that Adam didn't keep the standard. But it's, anyway, it's a fairly natural thought, then, that God would judge by a man who sets the standard at the end. So he's preaching Jesus. He's preaching repentance in ways that they understand. Uh, resurrection, he comes to. Why does he come to resurrection? He, he's going to... Um, Judge the world by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all. Now assurance there doesn't mean like being assured of your salvation. It's like authentication, confirmation. It's like we know this is true, that, 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 that it's this man who's going to judge because God raised him from the dead. That's how we know that's the judge. <laughs> and, and if you think about that, I mean, if, if that happened today and, and if the whole world became aware of it, that a man was raised from the dead, truly dead, and now he's back, that man would have a lot of authority. Just naturally, like, he just did what no one else can do. That's, that's what's happening. That's what God did on purpose. So, the resurrection proves Jesus is God's appointed truth speaker and judge. What clearer way for God to answer our question? Who speaks for God? How do we know who God is, what he wants? Well, the one I raised to life does. Listen to him. (laughs) Which is exactly what Deuteronomy 18 says, uh, the Father says at Jesus' baptism, and so on. Well, uh, the response to the speech, verses 32 to the end. When they hear of the resurrection, some mocked. Uh, Mentioning the resurrection basically gets him dismissed from the Areopagus. Um, the way I read it, it's not real clear. I don't think he goes back to the Areopagus. He's sent away like, ah, well, some want to hear again, but they might need to do so somewhere else. The, the official uh, response seems to be mocking and, ah, get out of here. Resurrection, come on. Uh, one of the Greek poets, Aeschylus, said, when the dust has soaked up a man's blood, once he is dead, there is no resurrection. That was the Greek view. Same word, Greek resurrection. Plato described the body as something to escape from. Why would you want to resurrect a clunky body when your soul can fly free? But that isn't the biblical picture at all. Job 19 says, After my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. But the Greeks don't think that way. The body is a drag to be shed in relief at death. And don't look back. Uh, This kind of Gnosticism is making a massive resurgence today. I've just been to a conference in the past couple of days and heard other uh, talks or other articles that have made this point very clear. It's the source of all the trans stuff that's going on today. The body is either a tool for your pleasure or it's getting in the way of you being who you want to be. It, it, your thoughts and your desires are the main thing. The body is just secondary. Adjust the body however you need to for what you want. No, no, no. Go back up a bit in the speech. God gave us our bodies to receive gratefully from him. That's what's going on. And our hope is in a restoration of earth as well as heaven of our bodies as well as our souls. So because of that kind of assertion by Paul, the Areopagus Council laughs Paul out of court. 
But some are interested in learning more. Dionysius is mentioned, Damaris, and others who believe with them. So as everywhere else, you have this note of of hope. Most reject, but there are some who are interested in hearing more. There are some who believe and follow Paul. That's what's going on. So let's apply this for a moment today. Uh, First of all, and let's just kind of run through the passage again and pick out the main points here. Uh, Paul is provoked at the beginning. Number one, uh, and referencing Jeremiah 20, where Jeremiah says, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, phrase. I was struck beginning to read Jeremiah 20, verse 7. It's, it's not something you usually say to God or accuse him of. Maybe we do in our moments of distress, but Jeremiah says, God, you deceived me. That's quite a shocking thing to say. What did he mean? Well, at the very beginning of Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah to go and preach to the nations. And you'll tear down nations and you'll build up nations. And now, halfway through Jeremiah, in his ministry, nobody's listening to him. And he's, he's being imprisoned and all kinds of bad things are happening to him. And so he says, God, you said this was going to happen. But this, all this other bad stuff is happening. What, what's going on? And, and so he says, I'm tempted not to say anything anymore. Because I'm just getting persecuted just for every time I say something. But verse 9 is the key. I, I want to not say something, but I have to. Your word is like a fire in me, burning in me. If I don't speak, it's going to burn up my bones. I've got to let it out. I've got to say something. And that's how it was with Paul in Athens. His spirit is provoked. Is the word like a fire within us that must come out? Are we provoked and indignant when we see people following their idols? And does that observation of idolatry, that feeling of jealousy, jealousy for God's glory, does that lead us to speak? connect this more to our world. Athens was a beautiful place. It was cultured. It was sculpted. It was marble. It was a compelling aesthetic that just made you stop and stare at all the beauty around you. We live in a world like that. It's a digital world now. It's like our movie trailers. Think about those YouTube documentaries with compelling soundtracks, sight and sound from Netflix or Hollywood. That's our modern-day Athenian temples and idols, getting us to worship self and sex and money and relationships and to ignore the God we know deep down is always there. What distracts you? What stops you in your tracks? What impresses you? The Athenians made all these impressive things and it was all idolatry. But if it's the truth in this book that impresses you, that shakes you to your core, that shapes you beyond the moment of sensational sight and sound, that's where we need to be. The fire needs to burn within us. We need to try to communicate. So Paul communicates who God really is to this cynical and idolatrous world. So we need to make that effort to convey the truth to others. Many times we consider it hopeless before we even start. And our witness is silenced. And that could easily have happened to Paul in Athens. It's like... Going from Berea to Athens, it's like going from Howell to Detroit. If you get the idea, well, Detroit's maybe a bad example. From small town to big, big, glorious, glamorous city, you get the idea. It's easy to go there and get impressed and take it all in instead of bring the same gospel message to them too because they're people too. So we're tempted to think, shoot, why even try? They're not going to listen. 
They've got uh, high-rise uh, towers, restaurants. They've got everything they need. But Dionysius listened, and Damaris listened, and others came to faith. Make the attempt. Do we try to communicate? Any good communication class will tell you it's a two-sided endeavor, right? Both speaker and listener have responsibilities. So the speaker needs to put his message in a form that's understandable to the listener. That's part of the Mars Hill uh, message. Uh, sometimes as Christians, we don't do this. Uh, we make sure we aren't compromising the truth that we know, and that's good, but we don't think enough about how to get them to understand who God is, who Jesus is, how to say it so that they will hear it. We can re rest on our religious jargon too much, or we're reading so many heavy theological books, we use those seven-syllable words, but it's the Jewish ones not that they don't know. It's not the Greek ones that they do know, Right? So it's important to, uh, to invest the time to know how to speak the message so that it will be heard. How do we communicate? It's important, too, to remember, do we change our tune when bigwigs are watching? Paul's in Athens with those guys. Do we act differently around the CEOs, around our customers, or, or our bosses? Do we soften or harden our tone when we're at the restaurant? And we realize that unbelievers are probably listening. Do we change how we act or talk about Jesus then? How strong a grip does the fear of man have on us anyway? Paul doesn't change his message. He adjusts the starting point, notice, based on where they're getting off track from reality. How do we communicate? Paul is not combative in this speech, notice. Paul takes all of his provocation, his upset, and he's really upset. And we, we experience this almost daily these days with the news that we listen to. We're upset, we're provoked. It's like, more trans news, great. And we're mad almost every day. What do we do with that? Look at what Paul does to it. He takes his provocation and he channels it constructively. A fool just vents his feelings, Proverbs says. Paul doesn't do that. He does correct their ideas, but he does it in a way they can understand, even accept, that doesn't unnecessarily provoke and offend. And frankly, that's not what we see on talk radio on the right every day today. There's just venting of upset, a lot of that. Not saying it's all bad, but Paul seeks to persuade not to point out how dumb they are. There's a lot of that on the podcasts I listen to. Not to just get people mad about it. 2 Corinthians 5, this is why we read 2 Corinthians 5. Knowing the fear of God, we seek to persuade men. Not to send them on their way to hell a little harder with a kick in the pants. That is not the goal. How do we communicate? Well, again, it's interesting. I think verse 16 actually justifies a little bit the, the anger that we have today. The, the upset. What makes you angry about the world today? Paul was angry and rightly so. The reason the Christian church is so ineffective in the culture today, I'm convinced, is that we just vent that anger with each other and almost never interact constructively with the other side, persuading them. The people that might listen don't make the news. We find them in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and it calls for hospitality and faith in God to change others. But if you let the news tell you what's real, then you're going to assume that no one like that exists. It's not true. It's not true. It's one of the frustrations I have. We, we've learned well in the last 20 years or so. We know deep down in our bones 
There's a deep leftist bias in the mainstream media. What we haven't learned yet is that there's also a bias on the right-wing media. Where we're bringing in all the news that we hear, and it's all activist stuff. And we forget that there's an awful lot of people that are never in the news that are wondering. At the conference I was at yesterday, Carl Truman was in Lansing, and he mentioned this very kind of point. And he said, this is what happened to Rosaria Butterfield, a hardened lesbian college professor. And a Christian pastor wrote to her, and it wasn't fan mail from her gay friends, and it wasn't hate mail from a Christian either. It was an honest invitation to dinner, to talk. She didn't know what to do with it. And so she accepted the invitation, and the rest was history. Like Paul in Athens, we must make what the, theolo- what the theologians call a free offer of the gospel. That's critical. And maybe 80% of the time we'll be rejected. But God has appointed those 20% to life through your ministry. How do we communicate? Not in a combative way. We need to persuade Last, what do we communicate? Again, just to rehearse, Paul points to who God is. We can't manipulate him with temples or idols. He made us. We're utterly dependent on him. The Greeks were really proud of their independence. Um, It's also interesting that he's on Mars Hill, the god of war, and the Greeks were very proud of their military history, their victories over Sparta and Persia and so on. And Paul just makes the point, He ignores all of that and just says, we are dependent on God. I find that fascinating. He doesn't feel like he has to wade into the Ukraine or the the Israel debates and take a side necessarily. Let's just just make the key point (laughs) that God has set the nations how they are and we are dependent on him. So we, the, the view that we have today, um, as I heard again in the conference yesterday, it, we think that we are self-directing, autonomous people who can set our own course and make our own decisions. We're free-floating individuals. And Paul says, no, we are groping for God in the dark, and we're living and moving in Him. That's how life is. And we need to acknowledge that, see that. And Paul points, so Paul points to who God is like that, and he points to who we are. We're the created, not the creator. He sets our boundaries and places. He gives us our bodies and tells us how to use them. We don't get to redefine or reject what God gives us. Our job is to embrace it and to submit joyfully to his design. And last, Paul points to the authority of Jesus to judge us all. God raised him. God has given him to us as our Savior as well as our judge. Who do you look to to judge you? We all have earthly people that we do that for. Parents, perhaps, or we look to an employer. Facebook friends, sometimes. Paul communicates who God really is. And, uh, and that in Christ, uh, God, we are in Christ, and that God is a, a judge, but also a savior. And so God, uh, Paul communicates this to a secular, a cynical, and idolatrous world. Jesus is going to judge all judges, and he'll judge every idle word that we speak. So we need to keep this in mind, and we need to repent daily and look to Christ's resurrection in hope of our own restoration. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for uh, your promises in your word. Give you thanks for uh, giving us models of how to present the gospel uh, to a jaded people. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us, ourselves, from getting cynical or jaded assuming that no one will hear. Lord, your power is far greater than man's rebellion and stubbornness. And so we trust in your goodness, in your providence, 
that we go forth to serve you eagerly and hopefully and joyfully. Before we go, Lord, you promise to sit us down at your table to remind us again that we are your offspring, your children in Christ, that you have uh, atoned for our sins in him, that you feed our souls in him. And so we come to you now gratefully, bringing our offerings and coming uh, to eat of your bread and wine. We thank you for all of this, and we pray in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word, and we pray, we sing. chapter 2, Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Paul on Mars Hill took in all of history from creation to consummation. This table takes in all of history as well. At the beginning, we had many tables, many trees to eat from, but we picked the forbidden one. And this barred the way to the table until Jesus came and opened the way again. His body offered on the tree, opened the way to the tree of life in paradise. And at the end of history, we will eat of it. Until then, let us recall our first love for the Lord Jesus, given us when we were reawakened from spiritual death. Let us repent and hate the works of darkness and come to the light, come to the water, come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit and the Bride say, come, all those baptized in Christ's name are welcome. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and welcome. The body of Christ broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C H R I S T K I R K M I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.